good morning to everyone in the Diocese of Orange and elsewhere in Southern California. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio on AM 1000. We're coming to you through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio today and every Thursday morning from 11 to noon from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. I'm Patrick Mott. All of us in the Christian world were shocked and deeply saddened just a few days ago when we learned of the murder of 21 Coptic Christian men on a Libyan beach at the hands of Islamic State militants. This was the latest and one of the most shocking attacks on Christians in the Middle East by ISIS, and it underscored a new and dangerous reality for Christians throughout the region. Joining us today to talk about this is His Grace Bishop Serapion. He is the Coptic Bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. Our listeners should know that this show is being recorded on Tuesday, March 3rd, which means that Bishop Serapion will join several other Christian leaders from throughout Southern California tonight on the campus of Christ Cathedral for an ecumenical prayer service in solidarity with persecuted Christians around the world. It figures to be a highly significant, important, and very timely event. Your Grace, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you, and thank you for your listening and the greeting for all of you. Before we get into the current situation in the Middle East concerning the Christian population, I'm going to ask you to give our listeners a bit of background on the Coptic Christians in the region. They've been a very significant presence in Egypt particularly for a very long time, but they've suffered discrimination and they have had very little say in their own government. Is that correct? Yeah, the Coptic Orthodox Church was established in the first century by St. Mark the Apostles, and it's called the Church of Alexandria. And the Christians have been in Egypt for all these ages. Of course, they they have a history of, of suffering, either in the Roman and then when the Arabs came, with waves. Sometimes you have a tolerant uh, rural, and sometimes you have uh, aggressive rural. It depends on who is governing the, uh, the country. But we're still living and surviving, and also there is a progress of the church, increasing the number of believers, increasing the number of churches, of monasteries, monks and nuns. And then the immigration started in the 60s, 70s, last century, and uh, many cops immigrated to Europe and the United States and uh, Australia. And uh, so that's why we established churches here, like the Diocese of uh, Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. About how large is your congregation here in Southern California? Uh, the diocese is composed of about 14,000 families. We uh, served by 32 churches and 61 priests, and this diocese was established in 1995. Ah, well now in Egypt, the presence of Coptic Christians is very present. It's almost, I hope I'm getting my numbers right, about 20% of the population, is that right? We don't have an accurate uh, number, but we depend on the membership of the churches, people who are attend uh, the church, which about uh, 15, 15% of the population. Well, is it considered today, in, in light of uh, events of the last several months, a dangerous thing to be a Coptic Christian or a Christian in general in the Middle East today? It hasn't always been that way, has it? Yeah. In Egypt, uh, since the 70s and uh, the rise of this uh, extremist Islamic, of course, uh, the, the majority of the Muslims are moderate, and we have a good relationship with them through ages. But unfortunately, 
70s and after uh, started a group of terrorist group who they call them Islamic groups and they uh, started by attacking the students in the universities and civics in Egypt and then it spread and many uh, churches destroyed killing uh, Christians uh, so it has been since the 70s until now increased in certain times and quiet but what happened recently it happened to a cops who uh, went to Libya for work they will be attacked by ISIS uh, and they beheaded them and that was just a few days ago uh, this is this is something that just surfaced could it possibly have been anticipated or predicted in any way or did it just come almost out of nowhere of course the situation uh, in Libya is a chaotic situation since the fall of Gaddafi and uh, there are uh, Christians like uh, Muslims Egyptian working there uh, we didn't expect that is the, the Christian to be targeted as a Christian. Uh, of course, people understand that there is no government and uh, everything could happen. But what is uh, and surprise us is targeting them as a Christian because uh, when they kidnapped them, they left the uh, fellow uh, Muslims, Egyptian, and they picked them particularly as a Christian uh, because we have nothing to do with uh, Daesh. As, as a cop, they are not in Egypt, so there is no any contact with them. Well, tell us a bit about the Coptic, uh, the, the reaction among the Coptic people uh, here in Southern California, and if you know it, the reaction among them in the Middle East to the 21 martyrs and the incident. Has it been relatively restrained? By that I mean there there is not a out, great outpouring of anger? Well, of, of course, uh, the, there is a, a kind of sadness because of this evil action, but people look at it in a different way. Because when they saw the video, and they saw this 21 who uh, went with raised head, they didn't deny their faith, because we knew that there was a pressure on them to deny the Christian faith. Yes. And because they kept their faith, and they went to be to death in very courageous uh, way, that has reminded the people of all the stories of the martyrs, how they went to Maktibdom singing, rejoicing, and especially in the video and show some of them uh, saying the word of Jesus, calling the Lord Jesus. Yes. And this has caused a great comfort for the people, even the families. When they interview the families of, of, of these martyrs, they said, we are happy for that. And then the interviewer asked the lady, do you think that is if they denied their faith and came safe to you, you will be happy? She says, no, no, no. We prefer them to die than to deny their faith. Even the lady, she went after and said, if they denied their faith and came here, we will kill them. So it shows that the people have the look it in a completely different way. They use this uh, video to frighten the people but the people, they took it as a witness, a great witness to the strong Christian uh, faith. And this is the cause of comfort of the families and many people. And also here in, in, in Southern California, uh, in our congregation, uh, if you speak with some of them, they focus on this part more than the brutality of uh, killing these people. I want to touch on that a little bit later in some more detail, because it is so extraordinary, uh, particularly in the modern age. 
What sort of interfaith cooperation and mutual support have you seen? Have you gotten a lot of support from not just the Christian community, but for uh, the people outside the Christian community, even from the Muslim community on this? Yes. Here in southern, of course, in Egypt, uh, Al Azhar and the uh, Mufti and all the Muslim leaders, the president himself, uh, President Sisi, he went himself to the Pope to express his con- personal condolences. He sent the Prime Minister to Elmenia to the families. And here in southern California, we also uh, group from the Islamic Center in Vermont, in Los Angeles uh, Islamic Center. They came uh, to me, expressed their condemnation of this crime, is, uh, and also expressed their solidarity, and uh, and also the Islamic Shura Council of Southern California. Uh, they called me, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Siddiq, uh, the president of the Shura Council. Yes. And, uh, he, and they sent a letter to me. So, yeah, we found uh, a lot of support from the Muslim community in Southern California. Wonderful. Well, the question I think that is on so many lips right now is simply why. Why target Christians specifically? Uh, and, and what sort of advantage does ISIS hope to gain from this? I think the ideology of, of ISIS and other such groups, that is, they are against any person who uh, does not follow their belief. And of course, Christians are obvious uh, target. Even they said in the video, uh, that is when they beheaded and the blood filled the Mediterranean, they said this is a message to Rome. So they are looking to Rome, uh, not just to the Copts in the Middle East. They said this is a message of blood, we send it to Rome. And uh, they always use in their uh, language, the Corsidans, to call it any anyone, and they call this uh, simple workers who went just for to work a poor people. They call this uh, this is uh, the crusaders, <laughs> and this is people has nothing. Even if you ask me what is the crusaders, they don't know about it. But this is their ideology. Anyone who is not uh, following the teaching is an enemy, and they consider uh, doing this is that is they fulfill their mission to get rid of this uh, infidels. What will happen also in other places, in in Syria and Iraq, what happened in Iraq when they captured al-Mosul, they kicked out all the Christians, they did with the Yazidis community, and then recently what happened in Syria in Hasaka with the Assyrian Christians, Uh, so they do it also Shia, even with Muslims who who don't follow their uh, ideology. We are speaking with His Grace Bishop Serapion, the Coptic Bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio on AM 1000 KCEO. Be sure to tell a friend about Catholic Radio.
We're back with His Grace Bishop Serapion, who is the Coptic Bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. We are talking about the current situation in the Middle East as regards uh, Coptic Christians, particularly in light of the recent killings in Libya of 21 Copts. And Your Grace, one thing I wanted to return to, we uh, were talking about it just a few minutes ago when we were on. You take a very definite note that these 21 men were true martyrs for their faith. They were abused, they were threatened, and told that their lives would be spared if they simply renounced their Christian faith and converted right on the spot to Islam. But every one of the 21 men refused to do that. And uh, as a result, they forfeited their lives. Do you find this to be a really extraordinary thing in the modern world? Because, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and we're finding the same sort of heroism that we can read about in the lives of the saints. This is really uh, something that doesn't come along every day, true? Yes, of course, this is an extraordinary uh, story. That's why it's a source for uh, comfort and, uh, and peace and uh, joy for us to find is that just simple people, they are not clergy, they are not monks, they are not nuns, but they're just simple people, poor people. They went to, to Libya not to evangelize or to spread faith, just to, to work. And then they found themselves in this situation, and it was very easy for them to escape all this, just to say, we are not Christians, even from the beginning, and kidnapping. Because when they, they kidnap, they take the Christian. If they know I am I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim, they will leave him. But he, they, they accepted that and continue for this. And you notice that is among the 21, one who is not the cop from Ghana. We heard that he was with them and he preferred to stay with them, which shows that is the Christian faith bring them together, even they are not from the same culture, same background. That's extraordinary. Right now, in uh, in your own congregation, do you have people here in Southern California who have very close ties to Coptic Christians in the Middle East, whether by uh, family ties or ties of uh, friendship or otherwise, who are are hearing about this fairly firsthand? Yes, there some have they know them personally. Yeah, one came to me and bring. Uh, uh, one of the 21 uh, martyrs, and he said, I know him. We used to go to the monastery together. So uh, his name is Isam. So uh, he recognized him as a person. And uh, we have many people here are coming also from many and these villages, and maybe also relatives to them. So for them, it's just to uh, feel sympathy with them, the, the family uh, tie with, uh, with them. I want to add to what I said before, that is also the extraordinary things. It's not only the courage of the martyr, but their families. I was so surprised when when I heard the interviews with their families and how they rejoicing uh, now they are martyrs. And it was asked, did you show the video to the children? They said, yeah, we show the video to the children. What was the reaction of the children? They said, the, the, the children of this martyr. And they received the video with happiness that is their father. Now he is a master in heaven with Jesus Christ. And to find the children to understand it in this way, I think this is a great witness of the power of the Christian faith. And I can't imagine any tactic that 
would backfire so badly on on the people that uh, undoubtedly intended it to be uh, another weapon of terror. Yeah. No, because we yeah we usually and through the, this years of the attack, we we also say to forgive them. We pray for them. That and it happens that that is, was uh, a lady with uh, her, her daughter was killed in another event. Uh, by this tourist and the interviewing TV and they asked what is the message to give to these people they said I pray for them to God to forgive them and people were surprised because they, they expect that she will, she will be very angry because her daughter died but this is to show uh, again how the Christian faith changes the heart and bring a peace and comfort from the Holy Spirit I can't imagine anything that would speak more loudly or clearly than that attitude, uh, because it, it, it is so completely against what a lot of people would think human nature would be. It doesn't have a touch of revenge in it. It doesn't have any overt anger in it. You are, you are praying for the people who have taken the lives of someone you love. Absolutely extraordinary. And it's coming from people who are very simple. It's not they don't pretend to say it because they are in front of the camera. Because this the villagers are very simple people who speak out of their heart. Well, I want to talk about something we've talked about before as well. M- many Muslims throughout the Middle East have strongly condemned the killings and have refused to identify with the Islamic State. In that light, how and why do you think ISIS continues to attract followers. It's not exactly flourishing, but they are still in business, and and young men in particular still want to throw their lot in with them. Why do you think that is? Because they have their own message, they have their own ideology, and of course they're very smart in, uh, in communication using the social media. And, uh, and there are people who are... Uh, uh, frustrated about whatever the situation there, or attractive for something new, and the idea of Islamic caliphate it's still a dream. So there, there are elements of attraction for for some people, but whatever the number they have, but what this number in comparison with uh, the, the number of Muslims, and many Muslims realize that this ISIS is very destructive to Islam itself. Because it gives a very bad image in front of the people. At the end, whatever they will say about their religion, what the people see, what the people hear in the media, that's uh, that's more effective on them. And when the Muslim came to me, we talk about this, and we talk about how they can they have a role in the society to change these things and really to speak very strongly and loudly and clearly against this ideology. Well, this brings up uh, the ecumenical prayer service tonight. It's going to represent a very tangible response to violence and discrimination against Christians in the Middle East and elsewhere. And continued prayer certainly is something that we should all turn to in our individual responses. What else can we do to help end incidents such as the killings last month? brings is to bring us together as a Christians. And one of the big challenges for the Christian is the divisions. And I think the persecution especially is becoming now all over the world everywhere. There is no 
discrimination when they persecute Christians in the Middle East. They don't differentiate between uh, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox. From them, he or she is a Christian. And I hope this is to uh, the way of the cross to be the way of our unity. That is, we appreciate the effort of the Diocese of Orange and uh, his great bishop, Kevin, for organizing uh, this event. Also, on the 15th of March, I will attend another event, also a communal prayer in solidarity with the Christians in the Middle East, uh, which is organized by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. We also appreciate the stand of His Holiness Pope Francis. As we speak, he spoke very strongly in supporting Christian and condemning this persecution. So bring us together as as a Christian, and also to lead the, uh, the Muslim leaders to feel the dangers of such kind of ideology and how to stand against it. And uh, in Egypt, we appreciate very much uh, the effort of President Sisi. And is, is standing, he is a very religious person, he's a Muslim, of course, he's a very religious person, but he, fee- he feels the dangers of such kind of ideology against the canton and also against his religion. Well, Your Grace, I noticed uh, we're going to wind up with this, but I, I noticed uh, on your website in looking at it that one of the great cornerstones of the Coptic Christian faith is just that solidarity with other Christian faiths. You, you put quite a lot of stock in that, I understand. Yeah, of course, because we work together to restore full communion and to be in, uh, one uh, in our faith and be together. Well, Your Grace, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us today. I appreciate it so much. You've given us such a wonderful perspective on Coptic Christians in general and on the situation not just in the Middle East, but here at home. Thank you again. Thank you, and my best wishes. We've been speaking with His Grace Bishop Serapion, the Coptic Bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, Southern California, and Hawaii. Thanks also for your presence at the ecumenical prayer service and your solidarity with persecuted Christians. I hope you'll come back and join us again. When we come back, we're going to learn the latest about the fourth largest church pipe organ in the world, which is currently not in a church at all, but in pieces in Italy and much closer to home in Orange. Our friend Monsignor Art Holquin will give us an update on the restoration of the famous Hazel Wright Memorial Organ that will once again find a home at Christ Cathedral. Don't go away. The Orange Catholic Foundation provides you the opportunity to leave a personal legacy and support your passion with our Catholic faith. A legacy gift is a gift that comes from your financial or estate planning. Gifts could come from appreciated securities or stock, real estate, a retirement plan, or life insurance. Some donors are in a position to make a gift during their lifetime. Others make the gift as a bequest in their will. Plan gifts can offer many benefits to you, including tax benefits or the potential for returned income. The Orange Catholic Foundation offers many ways to support the Catholic causes you care about. No matter the amount of gift you make, they have a giving option available to best support your passion within our Catholic faith. Contact the Orange Catholic Foundation today to learn about the Light of Christ Legacy Society and how your planned gift can make a difference. Reach them on the web at orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. They're here to help you serve your Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange. 
we're back, and we're on the phone with Monsignor Art Holquin, who, among several other positions, is the head of the Subcommittee for Organ Restoration of the Architecture and Renovation Committee for the Christ Cathedral Campus. Now, that's a big title, but we're talking about one big organ here and an even bigger restoration job. When we last looked in on the Hazel Wright organ, it was being taken apart piece by piece, and parts were all over the floor of Christ Cathedral. It was what you might call an organized mess, but now there isn't a trace of that organ left on the Cathedral campus. Monsignor, welcome. It's great to be with you, Pat. Well, where's the organ and what's happening to it? That's not an easy thing to pinpoint, I guess. No, especially when you're dealing with over 15,000 pipes and a console that is one of the largest in the world. The pipes, half of them are in Padua, Italy. They are at the Fratelli Rufatti factory, a wonderful company that uh, was responsible for the installation in the early 1980s of the great Hazel Wright Memorial Instrument. Now, the Rufatti factory was also responsible in adding quite a few thousand pipes from a wonderful instrument from the Westwood area. It is an Aeolian Skinner instrument, as well as the great organ that was in the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts in uh, New York City. That is another Aeolian Skinner. So really what we're talking about is an amalgamation of three great instruments that led to the great Hazel Wright Memorial uh, organ. And so the pipes from the uh, American portion of the instrument are being restored here in this country, and the Italian pipes have gone back home to be restored in northern Italy. Well, there was a lot of wear and tear on that instrument over the course of 35 years. How extensive was that? Uh, there was there was some real damage going on. Yes. First of all, I think it's important for folks to realize that the interior of the Philip Johnson structure, as grand and magnificent as it is, uh, had no temperature control. Right. Temperature was totally at the mercy of cranking open some of the lower windows or the great window that was behind Dr. Schuler, but uh, that was not open all the time. So temperature variances in the summer could range from above 80 degrees at the floor level to above 105. Some have said even 110 degrees at the upper reaches of the cathedral. And anybody that knows anything about pipe organs know that stability and temperature is so critically important. So after 35 years of those kind of temperature fluctuations, it created major problems for the pipework. Not to mention the fact that when those great doors were open and the outside air came in, oxidation occurred on a number of pipes. And so basically it was time for a major restoration of the instrument. 
Well, the restoration is going to be kind of a combination of modern technology and, I guess, what you call old-world techniques and craftsmanship. Is that right? Absolutely, because, uh, first of all, the pipes, where there has been some damage, they are in the process of being completely restored and brought back to their pristine condition. An example would be in the two gallery areas or the uh, balcony. Above those two balconies are ranks of pipes uh, that are trumpet pipes. They call them Ashmad trumpets, and they are done in a brass material. But if you take a look at them, when they were taken out, they were dark and pitted and in very bad shape. Mm. They are coming back brilliant in color, so as well as in sound, because the sound quality of the restored pipes will be brought back again to their pristine condition. But what controls the entire instrument, of course, is the console, and the console, of course, has... Uh, electrical and technological features that were 30 to 35 years old. And all that technological inner workings of the console are being brought to state-of-the-art condition. A lot of computer work. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it will facilitate the playing of the instrument by great organists coming in, the stop action when you pull a stop that will enable a particular sound of a pipe to play, let's say a flute or a trumpet, that stop action will be quick and effective, no lag time, etc. Plus, a wonderful new feature is going to be introduced into the instrument, and that is the ability to play the wonderful carillon that is in the cathedral tower. Right. Uh, there, it is presently the only way that those bells can be played is by a carillonier, which is the technical term for the person who plays a carillon to climb up the tower to the console, and it's a very interesting-looking console, and then play the bells that way. But with the link that we will have between the console and the tower, uh, the bells will be able to be played from the console, as well as, from what I understand, an app that can be placed on an iPad. And it doesn't uh, oblige the carillonneur to make that very scary climb up into the carillon. Correct. Well, he or she can do that, or else it can be played down below. Well, now this is going to be a two-year job. It's already been undertaken. It's underway, but it's, it's going to take two years to put this thing back together. Why does it take that long? Actually, we're about one year into it. And the reason is, is that Pipe organs are virtually all made by hand. Uh, Each of the pipes are crafted by hand. And we're talking about 15,000 pipes thoroughly inspected to make sure that they're brought back 
to their mint condition. And then once all the reconditioning and refurbishing has been done on all, all of the pipes, then they have to be brought back, reinstalled in the cathedral, including uh, reinstallation in the expression chambers. When people would walk into the cathedral, you see those wooden containers for the pipes that have slats on the front. Those slats enable the pipes to speak either louder or quieter uh, by virtue of closing or opening those slats. All of the pipes need to be replaced. And then because the cathedral is going to have a new acoustical quality to it, then the, the great work of what they call voicing and rescaling the pipes right. so the sound of the cathedral has to take place, and that will take months. Just doing that is almost mind-boggling because not only do you have to put this thing together like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle, you've got to tune it. And I can imagine a whole bunch of uh, guitar players out there who tune uh, their six-string guitars without even thinking about it. But now we're talking about, as you say, almost 16,000 pipes. This is a huge job. It's a huge job, and fortunately, the Rufati company is very skilled in this. Uh, there will be a team of their technicians that will be coming out to do not only the reinstallation, but also the new voicing of the instrument. But it will take uh, months, and it needs to be done when virtually everything is completed in the cathedral. It's the last thing to be done because it has to be in a relatively dust-free environment. There can be no construction going on. Well, I can imagine, too, that once the organ is back in, that it's not going to take another 35 years and they're going to have to pull it out again and refurbish it. There are probably going to be a lot of techniques employed to make this job last. Yes. First of all, there will be temperature control within the cathedral that never existed before. There will be an HVAC system that will be able to moderate temperature variances within the cathedral, and quite frankly, by not opening those windows, which created havoc on the organ, uh, the organ is going to be kept in, uh, in its pristine condition for a much, much longer time. And I must add, as wonderful and as uh, inspiring as the glory of Christmas and Easter, those productions were in the cathedral. I have candidly say the fact that you had artificial smoke, you had flying angels, you had all of that going on, did impact the instrument. And it was affected by that. Monsignor Art Holquin, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. We'll be checking back in from time to time about various aspects of the cathedral's uh, renovation, and we'll be very happy to talk with you again. Thank you. 
You're most welcome, Pat. When we come back, a few handy tips from Pope Francis and our own Katie Dawson about how to make a good confession during Lent. Stay with us. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio here on AM 1000. Well, we are two weeks into Lent. The ashes have washed off, and now many of us are starting to get a bit more serious about one of the cornerstones of the season, and that's repentance. Examining our lives and pruning back the stuff that needs pruning back. One of the best sacramental ways to achieve that is by going to confession, the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And that's not just us saying that. No less an authority than Pope Francis weighed in recently in a big way on the importance of working a good confession into our Lenten observances. At an Angelus on February 22nd, the Pope had 50,000 free copies of a 28-page booklet called Safeguard the Heart distributed to the crowds in St. Peter's Square. Francis listed 30 key questions to reflect on as part of making an examination of conscience in order to make a good confession. Here with us to discuss Pope Francis's approach to Lenten confession is Katie Dawson. She's the director of the Office of Parish Faith Formation for the Diocese of Orange. Katie, welcome, and thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Pat. It's good to be here. You've had a chance to look at some of the Pope's questions. They were originally in Italian, but uh, Catholic News Service kindly translated a few of them into English for us. And he suggests we should ask these of ourselves in preparation for a good confession. They're simple, but they're also thought-provoking. They're not all easy or formulaic or like some of the boilerplate questions that we might have grown up with, are they? No, they're really not. Now, of course, some of those boilerplate questions we were asked kind of reduced our relationship with God to a set of rules or, uh, you know, we could kind of punch the card and say, I did this or I didn't do that. And this is much more relational in its tone. Well, let's take a look at a few. I love this. This is this is actually a bit of a zinger. The question is, do I only turn to God when I'm in need? That's unexpected, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But in, of course, it really kind of goes to the question of whether or not we love God for what he does for us or if we love God for God's self. So if we think about how any other relationship of love that we're in we hope that we are not simply in that relationship for what it does for us, but also for the person themselves and being in relationship with that other person. And God is the ultimate other. So naturally, when we are immature, we look towards people to do something for us. But as we grow and mature, we hope that we're going to do something for them, that we're going to love them for themselves. And that is what God is looking for in a relationship with us, in a mature relationship. It's not necessarily a sinful thing to ask God to help us in a time of need, but if that's all we're doing, then it can become a kind of a lockstep in which we just look at God as a big divine slot machine. Exactly. Well, God is the giver of all good gifts, but the gifts are intended to point to the giver, to the one who is our source, the source of all love. Got another one here. This is this is an interesting one. Do I want to be served? The first time I saw that, I immediately thought of a restaurant, and I thought, well, of course I want to be served. You know, bring my dinner over here. But this is talking about do I want to be served or do I want to serve? There's a, a flip side. Yeah. 
Well, I think that every human struggles with the impulse to be self-centered and to seek our own comfort and our convenience as if we could obtain happiness in this way. But the paradox is that Jesus showed us that our path to eternal happiness, to true happiness, lies in laying down our lives for others, for being a gift in other people's lives. So um, this is the paradox, that focusing on the needs of others rather than pr the pursuit of our own needs and wants is what leads to true happiness, to lasting happiness. And again, this is not one of these boilerplate questions that we grew up looking at on the confession card when we went into church and sat in the pew examining our conscience preparing to go into confession this this has a little more meat on its bones yeah it really goes to our intention it makes us dig deep and and ask well what am i really about and who am i in the scheme of things who am i trying to be here is one that we may not think about day to day, and, I, and I'd really like to get into this one in, in a bit more detail, too, because I think a lot of us hide our lights under a bushel, in a sense, when we are out in public and we may be with people we have just met or even with friends, and the talk may turn to religion and our faith. Some of us may back off of this a bit. Here's uh, Francis's question about this. Am I embarrassed to, to show that I am a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to think of this, again, in terms of an analogy to re other relationships that we're in. So I'm married to a great guy. I love him. And I'm proud to introduce him to my friends and to, to claim him as my husband. And similarly, if I have a friend that I love and respect, I want to introduce them, claim them as my friend with others. Well, if I'm not also proud and happy to introduce others to Christ, then I've got to ask, why is that? And, and I think one element of it is whether or not I am truly identifying myself with Christ or if I'm just kind of going through the motions and I don't, I don't really want to lay claim to that relationship. So, mm -hmm. so that's a problem mm -hmm. that I would need to examine. The other is that we no longer live in a culture where it is a respectable or trustworthy thing to say, I am a Christian. That is a big shift in our culture from maybe 40 or 50 years ago. And part of that is about what people understand it to mean when we say, I am a Christian. And we might be better off to try and tell a story or try and tell someone what it, may, what it means in my life to claim Christ or to say that I'm following Christ rather than just sticking a label. I like the notion that you never accept a label in place of a story. And we shouldn't offer a label in place of a story. Our culture today is much more receptive to a story. Well, Francis is not telling us to head out to the airport and start buttonholing people. Uh, he is talking about witness when the opportunity arises, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. He yeah. wants us to be prepared to say who we are and who we identify with. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Katie Dawson. She is the director of the Office of Parish Faith Formation for the Diocese of Orange, and we're talking about a few handy tips from none other than Pope Francis about a good examination of conscience uh, leading to confession during Lent. Here is another one that, that is complex. Do I rebel against God's plan? Now, I think that's going to elicit a few shrugs from people who will say that they may not 
know what God's plan is yet, what would you tell them? Well, the question of what God's plan is, is that's a very significant question that people have asked in many different ways. I think that the um, most important foundational attitude is for us to recognize that God is God and we are not. We are created beings and God is the creator. So as the prophet Isaiah said, God is the, the, he's our father, we are the clay, God is the potter. And so who are we to question God on how he made us to be or the circumstances that we find ourselves in? And our attitude should be one in line with Psalm 8, which says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all I can say is, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So there's kind of, a, there's kind of an attitude of subordination, of saying, God is God, and I am not. Now, the question of God's plan, I think that God intends that we should all enter into communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and become part of this huge communion of faith across the world, across the universe, that we would participate in God's life, in God himself. That's God's plan. Sometimes people think of God's plan as being, oh, God wants me to go to this school, marry this person, have 3.5 children, and live in this neighborhood. And I really don't think God's plan is that kind of plan. I think God wants us to ask, where can I best serve? Where can I best love? How can I best contribute to the world? And God's plan is for us to do those things. Excellent. Well, to wind up in the minute we have left here, Francis wrote in the booklet that we need confessions simply because we are all sinners. Very simple. He also wrote this, and uh, these are strong words, but it's worth repeating. Whoever says he is without sin is a liar or is blind. How about that? Yeah. Well, I think that points towards a humility that we need to cultivate. We need to recognize that within us all is the propensity to seek our own interests at the expense of others, and that we are all capable of evil. And this this is the human condition, that we have this capacity to choose selfishly. And if we um, imagine that we don't, then we are deluding ourselves. Well, sorry to say that the booklet uh, that we've been talking about was published only in Italian and in limited numbers, but if and when a full English translation becomes available, we will be sure to let our listeners know. Katie Dawson, many thanks for visiting us today. Please come back again. Well, thank you for having me, Pat. And that's it for another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Please join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. for another hour of good talk and intriguing topics. You're tuned to Immaculate Heart Radio, AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott.